This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 13, verses 2 through 18. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, John. Morning, church. Let's pray together as we look to God's word this morning. Father, we ask that you would help us to see in this story how to live not just by sight, not just looking for the best possible circumstance, but looking instead to you and trusting that you will carry us through and you will bring your promise to fruition that our flourishing will come and, and the guarantee of it, God, can lead us to live very differently in a world of strife, in a fallen world of all kinds of trials. We pray you would meet us in that world today by the power of this story and that you would help us, God, to walk by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, nothing in this world will ever truly satisfy us. As Christians, uh, we understand this. It's very true. But I got to tell you, I would really love a cabin up north someday. <laughs> okay? I really would. Uh, we all have these fantasies, right, of some idealized version of our lives. And I'm sure you can relate to this. For me, I'd love to buy a bunch of land up north with a cabin on a lake. I'd love to design and build that cabin with Buck. 
and we love to put it up on Airbnb the weekends that we don't go there. In my mind, when I envision our life at this cabin, everything is just great there. Carrie and I always do just get along. We're just laughing, having a great time. My kids, they like obey me. They get along. We have a ton of fun. We have just eat great food all the time. I don't even know what we do for work. I don't know. But it's just great. If I could just get that land and build that cabin, then we would flourish. Life would be great. I'm joking, obviously. But the truth is we do this all the time, don't we? Where we, we expect that some certain life circumstance or experience is the thing that we needed. That is what is going to lead to our flourishing. And we could just make that happen if we just get that. For me right now, it's that cabin up north. For you, it might be getting married or saving this amount of money in this amount of time or uh, taking that vacation you saw somebody take on YouTube that one time. Whatever it is, if you just get there, if you just have that, if you just meet him or her, then you would flourish. But the older we get and, and the more wise we become, I think we start to realize, right, it, it just doesn't work that way. Because there are plenty of people who have the things that we fantasize about, and, and they're not flourishing. And the truth is, if we got that cabin or that spouse or that money, we know we would not flourish either, not in the way we hope or envision. We would still have disagreements with our spouses. We would still need to discipline our children. We would still disappoint and hurt the people that we love. The truth is, there is no way to just eliminate strife from our life in a fallen world. As much as we may hope that that would be true, better than instead to ask, where does our strife come from? Why is this? And how should we approach it? Which is exactly what our passage is all about today. Now, two weeks ago, if you'll remember, God made a promise to Abram and his family that they would flourish. He told them he's going to make them a great nation, and he's going to establish them in a promised land. And the point of this whole blessing, the point of all their flourishing is that in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All of them would flourish. Now, the emphasis back in chapter 12, in the beginning there, was on the smallness of Abram and his possessions compared to the bigness, the vastness of God's promise. We're supposed to read that and think, how's God going to bless all the sinful families of the world through this one man who doesn't actually have any land to his name and doesn't even have any descendants? But we saw Abram left everything he knew in order to pursue that promise by faith. Then in last week's passage, when a famine sent him on a bit of a detour away from the promised land down to Egypt, Abram encountered a threat there. If you'll remember, he was worried that Pharaoh was going to kill him and take his wife. And then what would be of this promise? And he responded in fear, and he made a huge mess of the whole situation. But by the end of that passage, that story, God not only fixes Abram's mess, he even makes him filthy rich in the process. And in our passage today, after that, Abram returns to the land 
of promise. And he returns to the land in, in more ways than one, really. First, he goes back to the very same places God called him to in chapter 12. But he also goes back to a posture of faith and worship of God. You'll notice in this passage, we are uh, made aware of Abram's worship right at the beginning. He calls upon the name of the Lord. He makes these altars. And also at the end, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And we're supposed to be clued into that um, this might be a changed man. I think we're supposed to read this and wonder, maybe he might have learned a thing or two from this little detour in Egypt because things are looking up here for Abram. He's back in the land. He's with his wife and his nephew. They're rich, and he is calling on the name of the Lord. It's looking up, then right away, there is strife in the land of promise. When we read about this strife, I really think we're supposed to think, okay, how's he going to respond this time? Is Abram going to blow it again? But he doesn't. His nephew Lot does. But Abram is an example here of faith in our passage. In him, we are supposed to see even how to handle strife in a fallen world, which I think is what we're going to see together now. And so if you would, Bible's open. Let's look through this story. We're going to try and understand it better so that we can really grasp and apply toward the end. What is God trying to say to us? How should this shape our lives today? The first thing I want to point out in this story, other than what we've already covered, is uh, I want us to look at the reason behind this strife. Now, in a practical sense, it's a fairly simple reason, but in a literary sense, if we look at what's actually happening in Genesis, there's quite a bit going on here. The strife between Abram and Lot does begin, in a practical sense, with an argument between their herdsmen. So let's take a little bit of a closer look, though, in verse 5. It says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that, here's the issue, the land could not support both of them dwelling there, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and it says there was strife. In other words, they were so rich that the land could not support them both. They had too much stuff. And the author does also point out that at that time, he says, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. In other words, the promise had not been fulfilled yet. He's putting a spotlight on this. This land does not entirely belong to Abram. And chances are he and Lot were trying to live together in just a small portion of this promised land. And so the problem was that God had blessed them so much, so quickly, that as a result, the land they did have could not support them both. Now here, I think we just need to pause and consider the significance of land so far in the book of Genesis and in the Pentateuch in general. Because in one sense, this whole story really is the story of human beings trying to flourish in God's land. And it's important we don't miss this. We might miss some of the spiritual significance. And so far in Genesis, the most iconic piece of land by far is the Garden of Eden. And in Hebrew, that's basically translates to the Garden of Goodness and Delight. And that garden, if you remember, it was a picture of flourishing. It was a picture of, of uh, the perfect life scenario. 
uh, utopia, if you will. In that land, God made the trees to grow up, if you remember, so that the man and the woman could effortlessly eat. And all along, the vision was that from that land, they would multiply and fill the earth with their descendants. But of course, after the fall, after the first man and woman rebelled against God, he cursed them and he kicked them out of that flourishing land, right? And as a part of his curse, if you remember, he even said, cursed is the ground, the land, because of you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. And so that famine we read about, even in last week's passage, can actually be traced all the way back to the fall. It is the result of sin. It's the result of a fallen world. Then as we keep reading here, without question, the next most iconic land in the Pentateuch is the land of Canaan, or what we call the promised land. And it is no mistake that God wants to do two things in this land. He wants to give it to Abram, first of all, like he gave the garden to Adam. And he wants to multiply his descendants, like he said he wanted to do with Adam. It's no surprise because, again, this has been his vision all along. And this is all part of his plan to bless all families and get back to his grand vision, to fill the earth with his glory. So when we read about the land, we're reading about something much more than just a place to live, right? In the Pentateuch, the land represents the place where God's people flourish with him, or at least where they're meant to. Now, I want to define a term here, flourish, that I don't want to use that too flippantly. In this day, flourishing did not look like extensive world travel and a whole gob of Instagram followers. That They had a little bit of a different definition of, of flourishing. Flourishing for them looked like survival and descendants. Okay? People wanted to stay alive and have families that carried on for many, many generations, which, again, is basically God's grand vision to fill the earth with his glory through all these families that glorify him. So throughout the Pentateuch, the land is pointing us back, in a sense, to that very vision. Now, this really sheds light on the strife between Abram and Lot, doesn't it? Because that is not happening. In fact, what we see happening in the land now is strife. What we see happening is the exact opposite of that plan. The more God blesses Abram and Lot even, the more strife it's going to create between their herdsmen. So we're supposed to read this and think, oh, here we go again. Yep, sin is going to ruin this somehow, just like it's been ruining everything so far. Because even though God just told Abram that he's going to bless him, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Here he goes. We're in the land, and his nephew just wants to make a name for himself. There's strife between them. Not enough land for, for both of them. He wants the land for himself and his herdsmen. And for that reason, I think we're meant to see here that even God's chosen people will experience strife in the land. They will. This plan to redeem creation is not going to be a cakewalk. It is going to be hard. But as we read this, again, we're supposed to compare and contrast the responses of Abram and Lot. And it's in doing this that I think that the real claim of this passage comes into focus. So let's do that. I want you to first notice that Abram clearly doesn't want the strife. Look with me at verse 8. 
He says, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. In other words, you're my nephew. Our, our love for one another, our family relationship, it's more important than who gets the land now and, and how we're going to work together in this land. Don't, don't have strife with me. And as a result, notice he's very open-handed. Very open-handed. Unlike he was last week, by the way, Abram does not protect his interests at all costs here. He basically says, look, what do you need? It's all yours. You take what you want. If you go this way, I'll go that way. You go that way, I'll go this way. Let's not, let's not have strife. Lot, on the other hand, seems to basically agree with his herdsmen that this is all a huge, huge problem. And as soon as Abram gives him the opportunity to choose the land, what does he do? He seizes it. It says even in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. And he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. And it even says, like the garden of the Lord. And like the land of Egypt, which we know is, is it's a wicked place in the Old Testament. But it is green. And at least that's why they escaped there for the famine last week in their passage. So in other words, Lot is chasing the land that looks best which in one sense is understandable. But as we so often do, he is only looking at the outward appearance of the thing. And as we read this, it's almost as if we should be watching a movie, and when Lot says, mm, I'll take that land, that looks like the garden of the Lord, that's when the bass tones come in. And it starts to get really ominous feeling. And then the narrator pipes in, right? And we hear... This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This is before the Lord rained fire and sulfur down on the land he just chose. In other words, this land is not as it appears. It may look fruitful now, but we're going to see in just a few chapters' time, it is not going to end very fruitfully. And this brings us to another big difference between Abram and Lot and their response in our story today. Lot lived by sight. He lifts up his eyes to see, it says, which land looks the best, but in doing so, again, he's ignoring the invisible spiritual quality of what is going on in the land, which, again, is the point of the land. He was ignoring what the land was being filled with through the lives of those who lived there. In this case, the land was being filled with sin, but he chose that land because it looked like the garden of the Lord. Abram, on the other hand, lived by faith. Now, I want you to remember something very important here. God just promised this land to him. He just said this. And, and the author even points out in verse 5 that Lot went with Abram. In other words, he followed him in the pursuit of his promise and his calling. And so the idea that Lot would get the first pick of the land here is absolutely, it's, it's out of line. And actually, as a later original Hebrew reader, you probably would have read this and thought, wait a second, Abram, what are, why are you doing that? He doesn't have any claim on this land. It belongs to us. It belongs to our bloodline, not his bloodline. But Abram did not just try to claim that greenest grass for himself. He was generous and open-handed. And as a result, we see the ultimate confirmation. God comes and he speaks to Abram and he affirms his promise. He reaffirms it all. And if anything, in fact, 
it seems as if he's expanding the promise. The scope gets bigger and the, the vision gets clearer. In verse 14, God tells Abram to lift up his eyes and look, very similar to what Lot just did, by the way. This time he tells Abram to look in every direction, northward, southward, eastward, westward, as far as the eye can see. You see that? That's what I'm talking about. And then he says, for all the land that you see, I will give. I will give to you and to your offspring forever. He also adds, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Same thing. You ever see any dust? You see any dust here? You see any dust? This is what he's talking about. That's how many offspring you're going to have. This is the clearest picture we've ever seen. God is picking up the hood on this promise to show him what this is going to look like. It's as if God is saying, even though other nations are dwelling in the land now, even though there is famine in the land and there is strife in the land today, just give it some time. Give it some time. It will all be yours, and you and your descendants, who don't even exist yet, will flourish in that land forever. The key is, not because you live by sight and try to make all of this happen, like you did last week in Egypt, but because I will do it. And there's, there's one last difference I want us to see between Abram and Lot, and it has to do with time. Lot looks for the greenest grass now, right? And we get the sense that's not going to go well. Abram looks in every direction, and he sees the land that God will give to him eventually. But I want you to notice God promises this land, again, to him and his offspring and his descendants, and they don't even exist yet. <laughs> but when he does give this land to Abram and his offspring, notice he will give it to them. Forever. Forever. By sight, in other words, Lot chose the well-watered land that God will soon destroy. By faith, Abram trusted in the promise of God that all of the land will be given to him and his offspring forever. And again, it's in Abram, church, that I think we're meant to see the real claim of this passage. What God wants us to see here is that he will make his people flourish in his timing. We can be sure of this. We must live as though we are sure of this. He will do this. Now, he's in the middle of a cosmic plan to redeem all things that we're kind of swept up in. And as we look around, it's going to be really tempting to doubt this truth. It's going to be really tempting because we're just going to see, as we look around, famine. We're going to think, how am I going to eat? We are going to see strife. We're going to think, i got to get out of here. And if we just live by sight, we are going to run ahead. We're going to try and make our flourishing happen on our own, but it will only lead to more and more strife in the end because there is no true and lasting flourishing apart from this God and faith in his promise. So when we see famine and we see strife, Church, we need to live by faith. We need to live by faith that this God will make us flourish in his timing. 
And with all that said, I want to I consider what does this mean for us today? I want to I talk about what does it look like, based on what we see here, to live by faith when there is strife in the land. What do we do when we get back from Egypt, we survive the famine, and here we go, there's more. What do we do? How do we live? The first way it looks like, the first thing this looks like is, number one, there's going to see two of them. Number one, blessing those who cause us strife. If we live by faith in strife, we'll be able to do this. If we live by sight, we never will. Now, again, this may feel very unintuitive to you. You may see that and you might wonder, well, wait a second, why would I do that? And how's that going to make me flourish? That's kind of the point. The answer is we never flourish by trying to make ourselves flourish. And the result, actually, of that is more often than not just more and more strife. Again, this is really interesting when we zoom out a little bit and look at the whole scope of the Pentateuch. From the very beginning, God's design was that we would flourish together with others as we multiply and fill the earth and subdue the earth. What I want you to see is that sin always distorts that plan, and it distorts it by changing the end goal of the plan. In our sin, we assume that the point of our flourishing is not to glorify God and his creation. We assume that the point of our flourishing is to make a name for ourselves. It, it's to celebrate our goodness and our glory. And as a result, what happens is we often tend to see and think of others as if their flourishing may in some way be a threat to our flourishing. This is what we see in Lot, especially, by the way, when they cause us strife. We don't want to help them flourish at all because like Lot, we often think, well, look, there's only so much land here. Uh, and, and if they start to multiply and fill it, well, then I'm not going to be able to flourish as much, and I won't be able to make a great name for myself. Now, not only is that a lie, which it is, but I want us to see, more importantly, the result of that lie only leads to more and more strife. We'll keep running from one well-watered plot of land to the next, ignoring the invisible spiritual quality of our lives, and we will never find the garden of the Lord. We're going to see it. We may even find, if we live by sight to that extent, like Lot, we may even find judgment. On the other hand, when we live by faith in God's promise, as if we can be sure that he will make us flourish in his timing, all of a sudden, our heart posture towards others will change. Our hands will start to open and, and like Abram, we will be free to give and sacrifice for others, even if they cause us strife, because we will know our flourishing is not at stake in this strife. Whatever's going on here, it may be hard, it may be challenging, but I have a promise from God, and this is not going to get in the way of that. This is the mark of one who walks by faith. They don't have to fight for their flourishing. They can be meek, for example, because God has already promised them that they will inherit the entire earth. And they know only he can make that happen. They can never do that in and of themselves. And the church, this is where it all begins. It begins in our heart. It begins with faith. Do we really believe that this promise is a sure thing? Do we really believe that Christ 
has overcome our sin and all strife by his death and his resurrection? And do we really believe that he will come again to make us flourish forever? Because if so, I think it shouldn't be quite as hard as it often is for us to bless others. We shouldn't have trouble with that, even when they cause us strife. Even when they cause us strife. Could it be that the reason we experience strife in our careers and our families and our friendships is that we are trying to squeeze our flourishing out of these things? We actually think that we can make ourselves flourish with or without this God, mind you, by just marrying that right person or becoming a great doctor or by having enough money when in reality, the more and more we try to make all of those things happen on our own, the more strife it will create for us. Men, I want to, I want to speak to you directly here to say we don't need to work more and more so that we can make it happen and make a name for ourselves. Sometimes that's us actually running from strife in other places even to try and make ourselves flourish. And the truth is, if we do this, we will start to see others, including maybe especially our families, as just another source of strife. Let's not do that. Let's work hard, yes, to bless others, and let's trust the Lord to make us flourish in his timing. Women, similarly, I want to speak to you here. You do not need to do absolutely everything in order to make yourself flourish in a marriage and in parenting maybe someday and in friendships and in your career and in your spiritual life. More than anyone I feel these days, you will be tempted to make yourself flourish in every conceivable category. Don't go down that path. No matter how well-watered it may seem, no matter how much you might think, I can probably do that, I can make that work, there is only strife down that path. There is only strife. Do your best, bless others, and trust the Lord to make you flourish in his timing. Church, this is good, this is good news for us. We can rest. We can rest. We can even give things up and do less. We don't have to constantly strive and defend ourselves and make our flourishing happen. We can even help others to flourish because this God has promised to make our flourishing happen and he's promised to do it in his own timing. And so first, walking by faith looks like, like being able to bless those who cause us strife. Next, it looks like waiting for God to bless us forever. We go, we be a blessing, and even when there's strife, we keep waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. The truth is, there is, there is in a way, there's a sense of disappointment that we have to kind of work through, I think, in order to live by faith. Uh, and I think this is kind of what Abram's working through on the other end of his detour in, in Egypt. And that is, there really is nothing we can do to just make our flourishing complete here and now. That there is some disappointment in that. Uh, there will be famine in the land. There will be threats to the promise. 
there will be strife between herdsmen. Even in Christian families, even in a healthy church plant, there will be. We have to come to grips with this as well. Living by faith in God's promise will require waiting. Waiting for God to bless us. Now, it's tempting to lose sight of this, but it's very true. God absolutely wants us to flourish. That's what he's at work in, in this whole plan and promise. But he is in the middle of a long and complicated process of overcoming the problem of sin so that we can really flourish forever. Until then, our flourishing will not be complete. We have to come to grips with that. But we can be sure of this. That when this God does make us flourish, we will flourish with him forever. Free from sin, free from death even, and even free from strife. Soon enough, Abram's flourishing, we're going to see, will be far greater than Lot's. Now the truth is both of these men died. But here's what Jesus says long, long after Abram's death about his future and about our future. He says this in Matthew 8. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Church, this is the flourishing we need to look forward to. This is our promised land. It is the return of Christ. It is the resurrection from the dead. It is the new heavens and the new earth. It is God's grand vision realized. And to live by faith now means that we wait for God to bless us in those ways. We may wait for God to make these things happen. That is when we will flourish. And so how are we doing with our waiting? How are we doing? How often do we just call in the name of the Lord like Abram and remember his promise? How often do we pass even on pleasures and comforts and accomplishments today because that we, pro we are promised flourishing forever with God in the end? And how often does the strife we experience throw us into a spiritual tailspin because our eyes are fixed on the land rather than the God who promises to make us flourish in the land? I want you to notice something here. Abram did not flourish that week. In fact, he won't have any descendants for many, many years, and he will never live to see those descendants actually conquer the promised land. Right? And so if we are only focused on flourishing in the next decade or three, <laughs> that's going to lead to a lot of strife for us. Church, we need to lift our eyes and look not just to the land, but to the God who promises our flourishing. And we need to look to what this God is doing throughout the ages. And we need to rest in that. I don't think it's, it's an accident that we live in a culture that promises instant flourishing. Instant. Nonstop entertainment. Free two-day shipping. Constant connectivity to everyone so that we can let everybody know how much we are flourishing, right? But meanwhile, as the promise of instant flourishing keeps multiplying, so does our 
strife. So does our strife. We're restless. We're lonely because we keep having to separate from everybody. And we are anxious. We are anxious. More now it seems than ever. There's a phrase I, I often write out in, in a, every time I get a new journal. I write this in there. It's one of the first things I do. It helps to kind of bring me back, if you will, when I feel uh, the strife sort of weighing on me and, and I feel tempted to sort of go make my flourishing happen, which is quite often. Simple little phrase. It's just slow down, zoom out, and rely on the Lord. Slow down, zoom out, and rely on the Lord. It's almost always the solution to my angst. When I can feel the strife pressing in on me and I'm tempted to fight for my flourishing and to make it happen, the truth is I don't need to separate from the people I love the most. I don't need a different job or some better life circumstances. What I need is to slow down, zoom out, and rely on the Lord. I'm sure this is exactly what some of you need today. You've been lifting your eyes in search of that garden, but the land you keep finding keeps drying up and withering away. Meanwhile, the strife keeps coming. Your anxiety keeps rising and your hope starts to wane. Listen, slow down. Zoom out and rely on the Lord. Wait on him to bless you forever. And listen, God does bless people in this life, and I pray that he would bless you in many, many ways, but I also have to tell you the truth. I think a lot of pastors may not tell you this, but you may not get married. You may not have children of your own. Uh, we may struggle with those issues we have in our marriage for many, many years to come. And our career may end in disappointment. There will be strife in the land, church. But there is a good and holy God who has promised to make you flourish in his timing. There is. To close, I want us to consider Christ. I want us to look to him in his example, he really did have every right to flourish. He really did deserve the praise and glory of all people even. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped for, we read. In other words, he was equal with God in every way. But he didn't hold on to this heavenly status. He didn't cling to it so that he could flourish as much as possible. In fact... Paul even tells us he emptied himself for the sake of others. Look with me in Philippians 2. He says this. It says, being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that, you would not think, is the path to flourishing. But listen to the result. Listen to the result. Paul says, therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him. God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That sounds a lot like God's grand vision, does it not? 
every knee in all of creation bowing, every tongue in all of creation confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the, that sounds like filling the earth with the glory of God. But what I want us to see is that Jesus understood the pathway there was not to fight for flourishing. He didn't have to try and flourish more than others. He didn't grasp onto his life so that he could maximize his flourishing and make a name for himself. No, he opened his hands. He laid down his life so that other people even could flourish. And what was the result? How did that end? Ended this way, church. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. We're not good at making a name for ourselves. Jesus didn't have to make a name for himself by flourishing in his own time and, and by his own ability because he trusted that God, his father, would make a name for him. And he did. He did. Church, we're meant to flourish in the same way. Like Christ, we can bless those who cause us strife. Like Christ, we can wait for the Father to bless us forever because this God will come through on his promise. He will make us flourish in his time. and He's even sent us his son to show us the way to the promised land. Let's pray together now. God, we thank you for the incredible power and glory and might of Jesus Christ, which is on display in his death. We thank you that there is no name greater, no name higher than the God who came into a world of strife and willingly subjected himself to sorrow and pain and even suffering. Why? So that he could be a blessing. So that all the families of the earth would be blessed even through him and back in his line through Abram. God, we thank you that in Christ we have the greatest confidence of all of our flourishing. That we thank you that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, we will appear with him in glory. God, set our eyes on that promise today. Help us to live by faith in your flourishing. Help us to wait on your timing, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.